There's no better time to become a member of the DSR network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support. Hello, and welcome to From the Silo. Following the shocking removal of Speaker Kevin McCarthy, this week's episode comes from a January 2023 episode of Words Matter where Norman Cavita break down McCarthy's pursuit of the speakership. We hope you enjoy. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. This is Benghazi hearings multiplied by 100. And Dr. Kavita Patel. I'm going to respectfully disagree. Happy New Year, and welcome to our 2023 inaugural edition of Words Matter. And we're going to keep to what we've been doing in Words Matter, where we discuss issues that are of importance in not just upcoming elections, but my wonderful co-host, Norm Ornstein, and myself want to make sure that we go into 2023 with the same commitment we had in 2022 when we started this podcast, which is to try to bring you as many perspectives on what our leaders should or could be talking about. So let's get into that. We're going to cover this topic of just, there's some notable things happening, Norm, you would say, in 2023 while we're recording this podcast. Maybe not, sure, not maybe front of the page, uh, above the fold newspaper, but we think it's worth spending some time on. But I think in addition to that, for our members only section, please try to join us if you can. We are also going to touch on some of the more recent events around COVID and some anti-vaxxer energy that has cropped up, unfortunately, with Grant Wall's death and with DeMar Hamlin's cardiac arrest to the Buffalo Bills NFL player, who is good news, reportedly doing much better by press as well as his own doctors and his team. So with that, Norm, it's been a slow week, wouldn't you say? First week, you know, most people don't even think about the beginning of a new Congress. Most Americans don't realize that we had a change in Congress. But it's uh, it's been quite eventful. And at the time of this recording, which I can't believe I'm I'm actually going to say this, which is going on day four of not having a Speaker of the House, we still don't have a Speaker of the House. Norm, first of all, Happy New Year. Tell me how you thought this new year would start when it came to control of power in Washington, D.C., and your thoughts on what is literally captivating Americans around the country to tune into C-SPAN probably for the first time in a very long time. C-SPAN's ratings are gone sky high. And one of the interesting elements of that, Kavita, is that under the rules, normally, the C-SPAN cameras are fixed whoever's speaking. You don't have any sense of whether there's anybody else in the chamber or what else is going on. And this was something to give our listeners and viewers a little taste of history. Newt Gingrich exploited to great advantage back when he was a revolutionary backbencher, because the House has 
morning business and evening business when there's nobody basically around and members can come in and instead of being you know stuck with five minutes they can if they get permission go on at great length what newt would do is go onto the floor with one or two of his colleagues the cameras had to be focused on just them and they would address the Democrats and rip into them and talk about how they were supporting communists in Central America and doing all kinds of other horrific things and make it appear that the Democrats were all there and wouldn't respond because they were guilty when they weren't even there. Now what we're seeing, because there are no rules in the House, there is no House actually fundamentally, the cameras are roaming around and we're getting these delicious scenes of Matt Gates in conversation with AOC and other members, including some who are antagonists right now, sitting and talking with one another. So C-SPAN has become much better. I'd love to have them change all of those rules. But that's a side issue. Americans are realizing something that has been pro forma and taken for granted, but that is an oddity of our process going right back to the beginning, which is the first order of business when the House convenes. And remember, there is no House as of January 3rd at noon because every member is elected every two years. The Senate, it's only a third, so it's a continuing body. So you stop, you have to start again. It's like rebooting your computer in a sense. But what happens when you reboot your computer and it just keeps going round and round and nothing happens? So they've set it up so that the first order of business before they swear in the members is choosing the speaker. Usually that's done in an hour or two. It's a done deal. Then they swear everybody in. Actually, then the clerk or somebody else swears in the speaker. Then they swear, the speaker swears everybody else in. Then they do a rules package and then they start their business. In theory, at least, this is unconstitutional. Because the people choosing a speaker are not members. They haven't been sworn in yet. And they don't get paid. And uh, now, of course, we're seeing the craziness of this. As we go on without members, they all brought their families. The families have mostly gone back home. And now we're moving through multiple days of this. And of course, to some degree, I expected that we would see some variant of this simply because it's been clear for a long time that Kevin McCarthy is a feckless, weak, and a lot of his members hold him in contempt. This is personal, actually, for many of them. Um, the more concessions he's made for many of them, the weaker he seems. And it's certainly one might have expected it to be resolved before this where McCarthy would see the writing on the wall. Remember back in 2015, when John Boehner was pretty much forced out of the speakership and then was going to leave Congress, the heir apparent was Kevin McCarthy. They bypassed him then for the same reasons that he's getting opposition now. And they went to Paul Ryan, who didn't really want it, and then had four miserable years of it. This is the second time that McCarthy is in danger of being rejected. He is going to cling to this as long as he can. But let me talk about a couple of dynamics, and then we can delve even a little bit more into the nature of the Republican Party. But also, whenever they get a speaker, 
you know, everybody, the, the obvious phrase to refer to what's been going on is shit show. And it's been funny to me to see cable news try to get around calling it that. It's, well, this is an expletive show. You know what I mean. But there's going to be a shit show afterwards. But keep in mind, first of all, that you have a bunch of people and they're human beings who are now forced to stay in Washington and to be on the floor. And this weekend, we know they're going to lose several of them. They're going to lose several of them today. You have one member whose wife had emergency surgery and he can't be back home to be with her. You have another who just had a brand new baby who can't go back home. We have others who have family issues and problems, things that they really desperately want to do. And you have also now a group of mainstream members. We can talk a little bit later on about the continued journalistic malpractice of referring to them as moderates. They're not moderates. But they're now getting more and more alarmed that the concessions that Kevin McCarthy is making to the Freedom Caucus types is going to make their lives miserable. The idea, for example, that some of these radical bomb throwers will chair important subcommittees on the Appropriations Committee, will have a major hand on the Rules Committee. There's pressure on McCarthy that if this doesn't get resolved in the next couple of days, it's time for him to go. So I would say the odds that Kevin McCarthy will prevail here are 20% or less. The odds that we will get this resolved by the middle of next week are 90% or more. And it will be somebody other than Kevin McCarthy who will be speaker. And he will probably go out and either become a Fox News host or contributor or go to some hedge fund as uh, Eric Cantor did to make a bunch of money. But he will be history. That is most likely the case. And that's not a bad thing. Okay, let me, lest it be said that uh, we never disagree on anything, I'm going to respectfully disagree. And I said this, uh, not on this podcast, but I, I said this to a couple of, well, actually, there's this large group of us that used to work on the Hill, both Senate and House, um, who have been in this kind of furious ongoing texting chain that have been able to use expl expletives and shit show and a lot of other things and some great memes that have come up uh, on Twitter that I think are just priceless. Uh, but I actually think McCarthy will become speaker because if he can hold this out, 11 votes, and he'll keep going. Even whatever deal he has to strike, however he has to do it, even though the group of 20 terrorists is, I'll just go ahead and call them. They're not moderates. They are terrorists, especially on the day we're recording this, January 6th. I do think that he will hold out and he will end up being speaker by, you know, literally the hair on his chinny chin chin. And in fact, to your point, Norm, what does that mean? Charlie Sykes was on uh, MSNBC and a couple of other um, other network shows. And, and I think he said it best. He's like, whoever comes in, you know, good luck to them. This is just going to be like crazy chaos continuously. So no matter who becomes speaker, which I think it'll be McCarthy, because he will just hold out until it's so painful for everybody, including, as you mentioned, House members themselves who haven't been sworn in, and especially poor George Santos, who like apparently can't remember his own name because he can't vote every time they call his name. And he's not even sure what his real name is, but 
you know, even that poor guy is trying to figure out like, when is this going to be over? But nothing, nothing to me kind of, I have seen no evidence that he will back off. And I think this rotating Lauren Brobert, like this kind of rotating cast characters and idiots and Matt Gates with his Trump speaker hashtag that went viral two days ago yesterday, it's, it's just going to continue. I do think it's also worth pointing out, you alluded to this. I just want to point out that this slim margin is exactly what Pelosi has been handed several times before. And she has managed to, you know, not just make herself known that she would be speaker supported unanimously as speaker, but actually get stuff done and literally able to run the house, pass legislation, literally a slate of legislation that I would argue rivaled, you know, the new deal. McCarthy can't even, and again, I do think it might be him, but your point is taken who fill in the blank, you know, whichever person this is, they're not even going to be able to, I don't even know if they're gonna be able to call a quorum. That's like how unorganized the situation is. But I do also want to underscore so that all these X Hill staff were both Republicans and, and Democrats that we were all kind of talking about. And it's the first time I've had so many staffers, ex-staffers, where I think we feel a certain amount of pride that like, here's what plays out on C-SPAN and how people think of members. And then there's like those of us that kind of worked for these members and like what we know about how things get done on the Hill. Every single one of us, and there's probably about 25 of us on this text chain, every single one of us said that this is literally like the destruction of the Republican Party. I mean, we already thought the Republican Party had kind of been destroyed, died, and that there was this leveling that was occurring. But this is this is of a kind of like display and scenario that I don't even think that uh, the true like moderate Republicans, Ronald Reagan Republicans, so to speak, they they have no idea kind of where that, you know, whether it's Edwin Meese, Ronald Reagan, all the way now to the Trump lawyers, right? Like uh, Clayton Mitchell, you know, John Eastman, Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife. That's the Republican Party now. And and this is just an incredible like show of. So let's do a little procedural matters. I've been asked this a lot, Norm. We're going to do a little Q&A just to keep the back and forth. I've been asked this many times. Hakeem Jeffries has been holding with his 212 votes. It's been unanimous. Democrats have held strong and using this as a point of pride to keep as many times as they can talking about him, which is wonderful. Is there a scenario where Hakeem could actually become speaker? Norm, what's what's your answer? Yes, no, why? And thoughts about that? So there is a scenario, although it wouldn't last for very long. And that scenario is where a significant or a sufficient number of Republicans do not show up on the floor and the Democrats hold their discipline and keep their members there, which is an iffy thing because the choice of speaker is a majority of those present and voting. And if you lost 12 or 15 Republicans and all the Democrats show up, the 212 becomes a majority. So that could happen. But obviously, when those Republicans got back, they'd be able to call for another vote for the speaker and he would be removed. But it would be a delicious thing. Now, you know, another possibility, I think a very slim one, is that ultimately the Republicans who are getting nervous about not having a speaker, getting fed up with the concessions that McCarthy is making, work with some Democrats to get a 
Republican, reasonable speaker. One of the things that I've sort of pushed for many weeks, not because I expected it to happen, but because I thought it would underscore once again that the Republican Party is, as you said it is, is that there would come a time when Democrats might say, all right, we've had enough of this. You deserve a Republican speaker. It should be a conservative, but an honest one. We will all vote for Fred Upton, who's retired. And if six of you go along with that, you're going to have your Republican speaker. Now, one incentive for doing that is Matt Gates today said if that happened, he would resign immediately from Congress. That's incentive enough to make this happen. Get rid of Matt Gates would be wonderful, but it's very unlikely. And the scenario that a couple of Democrats floated, you know, tell you what, we'll cut a deal with you, including with McCarthy. No debt ceiling debacle, no government shutdowns, limits on the investigations and subpoenas. That's a non-starter because none of the Republicans would go along with that. Um, it would be uh, uh, basically undercutting their entire agenda. So I just want to add a little bit to why I think it's a much slimmer chance for McCarthy. And that really is that the combination of people wanting to end this and the fact that six, seven, or eight of these dead enders are unlikely to move in the short run. And the idea is that they're going to put enormous peer pressure on them. If you are Gates, Boebert, Biggs, and uh, you cave now, you know that Kevin McCarthy, if he is speaker, is going to use his power at some point down the road for retribution because you have put McCarthy through an intense period with a public watching of utter humiliation. So your incentive to give in is very, very slim. And again, if you take this into the middle of next week, where people's lives are being frayed, they have to be around, they know that they're going to go through pointless roll calls where there is no change. McCarthy's supporters are going to start to turn on him and demand that he give it up and find an alternative. I'm not sure who that alternative would be. I think if there is a Paul Ryan type, it would be Tom Cole. And Tom Cole, who of Oklahoma, who used to be an institutionalist and then went MAGA, which means that he would be probably at least marginally acceptable, at one level would prefer to be chairman of the Rules Committee. But if the concessions that McCarthy has made that they can't roll back includes putting a bunch of Freedom Caucus people on the Rules Committee, all of a sudden that job may be less attractive than being speaker. One policy issue just to keep in mind for something that has been reverberating in my head, even at like vote round number three, debt ceiling, Norm, so much is at stake for so many reasons. And we will get, there will be, <laughs> there will be a speaker at some point, even though this a current event, much like a, a pandemic is literally a once in a century event. Here we are. Um, but we will have a speaker and we know that whomever this person is, and that's an interesting one with Cole. I had to myself Google who the heck is Kevin Hearn? Because when that yeah. name came up, I'm like, wait a minute, yeah. is that, did they just make up a name? Is that George Santos's real name? What's going on? So, you know, you're right. There's like this cast of characters from Donald and Hearn and Cole and 
I wish I could see somebody like potentially reasonable like Upton, but that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Scalise was there for a while. Someone will be speaker. And I am incredibly more and more and more worried about the debt ceiling. Tell our listeners why we should all be a little bit paranoid about anybody being speaker in this party environment and the debt ceiling and what's at stake there. Because I do think that's important for people to have context. Absolutely. In 2011, the Tea Party movement had brought Republicans a swollen majority in the House. It was something that had been encouraged by the so-called self-proclaimed young guns. That was Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, and Eric Cantor. And they came in eager to use the debt ceiling as a lever, as a hostage to bludgeon Barack Obama into making a bunch of policy changes, cuts in important programs, uh, more tax cuts that were not going to happen. And we came right to the edge as people like just, uh, Jason Chaffetz pushed this. And Chaffetz afterwards said, we were serious. We would have gone right over the cliff. John Boehner, the speaker, blocked it from happening. That was the beginning of the end of his term as speaker. But because we came so close, we actually saw our credit rating as a country go down and it cost taxpayers, even though it didn't happen, $18 billion in additional interest costs. That was the Tea Party movement. 2015, fast forward four years, the Freedom Caucus developed because the Republican Study Committee, which Kevin Hearn happens to chair now, uh, the right-wing caucus wasn't right-wing enough. Now, let's fast forward to 2023. The Freedom Caucus now probably constitutes close to a majority of Republicans. They have already indicated they want to use the debt ceiling to bludgeon Joe Biden into probably forcing the resignations of Alejandro Mayorkas and uh, uh, Merrick Garland for impeachments, for more tax cuts for billionaires, for cuts in Social Security and Medicare and probably Medicaid. Those will not happen. But if Kevin McCarthy is speaker, McCarthy who egged on the Tea Party back then, but is so weak that there's no way he could do what Boehner did, step in and say, no, you can't do this. And some of these members are clueless enough that they think if we actually go into default, it will discredit the federal government and they can achieve their goal of eliminating federal power entirely. They do not understand that if we lose the full faith and credit of the United States, the reverberations for the domestic economy and globally are catastrophic. But at what Americans who have paid little attention to Congress have seen over the last four days getting a spotlight on something that nobody would normally pay attention to is what kinds of radicals we're dealing with. And we face a serious threat that unfortunately, I think mainly because uh, of the cinema and mansion, the Democrats in Congress were unable to resolve the debt ceiling issue once and for all to take it off the table last year or during the lame duck session. And we're teetering at the edge sometime in the next six months of catastrophe. And that is no matter who the speaker is, if it's one of the Republicans out of their caucus now. Now, and it's true that uh, it, 
exactly why I'm terrified at just what is unfolding and an implication on the debt ceiling. And you're right, it's a proof of kind of past decisions that seemed like reasonable ideas during more, I would say, times of a normal congressional discourse between majority and minority, all coming back to haunt us, which is why I always, when I think about large scale changes to any sort of procedures we have, and especially this common conversation you and I have had about supporting ending the filibuster, thinking through these consequences. Um, again, I support the end of the filibuster, but I, I think about the debt ceiling and those negotiations, some of which I was around for on the Senate side, but as you pointed out, played out a lot on the House side, we could be really regretful. Biden, just to, just to kind of throw this in there, I think Biden has been doing this fascinating Ohio-Kentucky bipartisan roadshow all while this, you know, melee and embarrassment, as he's called it appropriately, without the expletives, at least on camera. And that's unusual for Joe Biden, as you know. Uh, he, he has definitely been kind of play, hamming it up with the, you know, McConnell-Biden-Kentucky bridge over some river and uh, doing quite a bit of, of what I would say is taking advantage of the shit show in D.C. And I hope he continues to do that. But I think that his administration will need to do in order to point out what you're pointing out to viewers, his, his administration will need to step up and literally on a daily basis point out what we have identified that not having a working Congress or even people who supported any, not just the 20, but people who supported Kevin McCarthy, anybody who has even voted for any contingency of this mess, regardless of, of you know, moderateness or radicalness, I think they need to understand that this is going to hit them directly in their pocketbooks. This is going to hit them in terms of their economic uh, just progress. We had jobs numbers that came out while we were recording this podcast. Podcast about two hundred thirty four thousand new jobs. So we're continuing to see the things that Biden put into place for economic recovery continue to work. That only occurs with a functioning government, and we clearly have demonstrated that we don't have a functioning government. And so let's let's try to do me a favor, Norm. Let's close out. Then we have kind of alluded to when we get a speaker, some of debt ceiling, some important issues. Tell me what you think then will happen. And we know there'll be an incredible amount of oversight hearings. I'm used to the, uh, when I was in the Obama administration and Congress changed and it was a Republican majority in the 2010 midterms, you know, everybody braced at the agency level to staff up for oversight and counsel, knowing we would get, you know, millions of paper cuts. Well, 13 years later, those stakes are even higher. Norm, talk about what you think we will start to see as Americans unfolding when this Congress gets, uh, gets, you know, going with any sort of activities, which at this point in time could be in, well into next week, but will, will definitely occur. So, you know, every member who has put Kevin McCarthy's name in uh, as nomination for speaker has said, it's time to move past this. We need to govern. Well, we know their vision for governing, which has nothing to do with governing. There's no policy agenda here at all, unless it is a policy agenda of once again, repealing and replacing Obamacare with no replacement that they could possibly come up with, getting rid of green energy and moving back to fossil fuels and more tax cuts uh, and slashing whatever is left of domestic government, including, as we know, is the explicit aim of many of them which is to 
basically fundamentally go after Social Security and Medicare. Other than that, it's all an agenda of investigations and impeachments. And these are not oversight. Oversight is where you look at government policies as they have been implemented, look at whether they meet the test of the law or whether they are being carried out efficiently and effectively, and then moving to either alter the law or find ways through appropriations and authorizations to make sure they work the way they were intended to work. That's not on the agenda at all here. Uh, instead, it is basically gotcha stuff. This is Benghazi hearings multiplied by 100. And of course, the first thing they want to do is go after Hunter Biden's laptop. Remember, Hunter Biden, unlike, say, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, has held no government office. And this has nothing to do with policy or governance. They want to cut aid to Ukraine and they want to go into investigating the investigators on January 6th, today of all days, to focus on that. And remember, a part of what they have in mind, and this is whether McCarthy is speaker or not, they will do a rules package that includes evisceration of the ethics process. And they're doing that for one main reason, which is they do not want the insurrectionists in their own ranks who have been spotlighted by the January 6th committee, including their incoming chair of the uh, Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, and Andy Biggs, and a number of others who are complicit in January 6th and the violent insurrection, they don't want to have an ethics process that goes after them, much less the continuing embarrassment of George Santos. And then, of course, they're going to go after the border. They've talked about the border. It's not that they have a policy. It's that they want to slam the way in which, as they call it, the open border, which is a fallacy, has been carried out. And they want to go after Merrick Garland. Uh, and uh, after the CDC and basically a belief that by pushing for vaccinations and masking, and they want to go after Tony Fauci, even though he's no longer in government, that those have been wrong and misleading. Uh, there is no positive agenda here. And to whatever degree you would have a speaker who would say, you know what, we should really show that we can govern, the speaker will be weak enough that uh, that will be the dominant agenda. One point uh, uh, beyond that, Kavita, as you mentioned, uh, Kentucky, there are few people more uneasy or upset by what's happening in the House right now than Mitch McConnell and his Senate Republicans. There is a reason why McConnell was eager right now to go to Kentucky and embrace Joe Biden. And it is that for McConnell, there's one goal here, and that is winning back the majority of the Senate in 2024. They have every opportunity to do so. Twice as many Democrats up, Republicans really in a position to hold their own and pick up some seats. The worst thing that could happen to them is that the Republican Party continues to be defined by radical bomb-throwing crazies in the House, and that suburban voters who cost the Senate the majority this time 
in Georgia and in New Hampshire and in Arizona um, will get even more turned off and they'll lose their majority. So, uh, you know, there there is a an enormous nervousness. What Senate Republicans want to show is, look, we can govern and keep all those Republican votes and get people saying we need checks and balances. This is not helping them. And we're going to see at least as much tension between Mitch McConnell and whoever is the Republican Speaker of the House as there will be between Hakeem Jeffries and whoever is the Speaker of the House. Yeah, and it also, to uh, up the ante as we close, that will only get magnified by whomever the Republicans put forward as their nominee for the presidential ticket, because as we know, in a 20, you know, in a, in a presidential year, there can be an, it's just a very, and we know this from some of our previous guests on voting experts uh, and kind of what to not believe in polls, but we know that people vote down ticket, especially if the top of the ticket, the president in this case, has such high stakes, higher visibility. So yes, Mitch McConnell has a lot of reasons. Um, although, look, I've I've said it before, I'll say it again, somehow McConnell always wins. I mean, I, I, even when he loses, he somehow always wins because he's cut a deal for something to happen, you know, two years from now that'll benefit him. He um, I used to joke that he reminded me of the Southwest Airlines CEO as a recent holiday disasters that no longer applies, but Southwest Airlines for so long had enjoyed basically kind of a flawless reputation. Um, and, and Mitch McConnell in the Senate was like the, you know, Herb Kelleher, the Southwest Airlines CEO of the Senate. That man could just not be taken down no matter who you were. And I think it's something that most senators actually have processed and understood, but you're right now, Mitch McConnell's biggest threat is not from his own caucus, not from within the Senate chamber even, is from outside. And that is definitely not something he could have, or I don't think any of us could have seen a scenario. If you had told me that this many felons would be able to put forth speaker nominees and names and votes, I wouldn't have believed that that was the United States of America. I would have told you it's another country. And here we are. So with that, we will close. This is uh, certainly going to be a topic of ongoing discussion because, Norm, as you point out, too many policy issues that touch the lives of our listeners are at stake. And we will constantly keep bringing up their words and, and as much as they matter. Uh, so I want to thank everyone for listening to us and joining us. And we're a Words Matter, a podcast of the DSR Network. And we really hope that you can subscribe to this feed on your favorite podcast player or on all of them. Share this episode in particular with your friends on social media, hashtag who's the speaker. If you like this episode and want even more, become a member of the DSR Network. It's a great, not just, I won't say resolution, not using the R word. I'm just going to say it's a great way to kick off a new year. And you can get access to our bonus segment and especially the upcoming bonus segment where we're going to talk about uh, the state of COVID and uh, the terrorists uh, against vaccines. And I want to finally thank uh, our producer, Grant Haver, and our executive producer of the DSR Network, Chris Patnoir. And the next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feeds on January 12th. See you then. Welcome back to the members-only section of Words Matter. Norm Ornstein and I are going to take a little bit of time. I'm just going to give a top line of where we are with COVID very briefly. At the time of this recording, we are in a surge in the United States. It's a variant that has too many letters and numbers, and many of us were hoping the World Health Organization would actually give it a name to just release us from having to say things like- McCarthy. We could, or Santos, there you go. (laughs) The virus that ultimately we all want to get rid of. 
just for the sake of having me not have to say XBB.1.5, which is the variant that is surging and producing hospitalizations in New York City, the metropolitan Northeast, and has resulted in actually many jurisdictions in the Northeast putting masks back into schools for a temporary time period so that they can try to help stem back not just the surge of COVID cases, but the other viruses that are circulating. And then simultaneously, January 5th at 12.01 a.m. went into effect a testing requirement and some additional requirements for for travelers from the PRC and from Singapore and other ports of either intermediate entry, but anything kind of coming from like the Republic of China into the United States, a requirement as of January 5th for a negative COVID test to be done within the last 48 hours. And then I want to round out, we have too much to talk about, but I'll hit on the Chinese thing very quickly, see if you have a follow-up. And then I did want to try to get something in because we saw this incredible week in football with DeMar Hamlin from the Buffalo Bills. I'm not a huge football person. I'm a soccer person. So I'm still kind of grieving from Grant Wall's death, the incredible soccer reporter who unfortunately passed away during the World Cup. I was still kind of processing that grief. And then we had DeMar Hamlin in front of millions of Americans literally go down in a cardiac arrest only to be truly miraculously in the miracle of science to be miraculously resuscitated, taken to the ICU at the University of Cincinnati, and now actually able to ask questions and write uh, and converse with his team and do what I think people can only describe as literally the best outcome possible, only to also be tainted by the worst anti-vax trolls, horrible terrorists and people. I don't even call it disinformation because these people are terrorists to incite the notion that all of this happened because of his vaccine. And all you have to do is go into any social media medium to find this incredibly disgusting dialogue. So wanted to just kind of comment on that. So Norm, China, we had the Biden administration in a corner. I, I know for a fact that the testing requirement doesn't do much, but it was short of a travel ban, which is what some Democrats and Republicans were asking for and talk about a geopolitical mess. That was something the Biden administration did not want to do. And by the way, they don't work. And we do our, as I mentioned about the variants in the United States, that did not come from China. We did a good job of creating that variant in the domestic U.S. because the United States is the first place we have seen proof of this variant. So tell me your thoughts about China had a terrible zero COVID policy. It did not, it clearly was never going to work and resulted in just a catastrophe from what I could see uh, economically and mentally in China. So then Xi Jinping's decided, let's just take the whole thing away. This has been discussed a bit on our Deep State Radio sister podcast. And, and when they decided to just let it rip, they literally let it rip with nothing in place for controls or surveillance. Add to that that China only reports about less than 0.05% of their genetics, reliable numbers of cases. Nothing coming out of China is reliable. And all we have are anecdotes of just horrors on the ground. So tell me, kind of, Norm, your thoughts. And we know this will affect the United States one way or another. It already is. Kind of what, how does this play out in your mind in this kind of geopolitical? And then I can talk about any science we need to. Sure. So a couple of points. First, you know, there were a lot of uh, people who said, well, China, it's an authoritarian government. Look at how well they're handling COVID. 
right at the beginning when other countries were grappling with this surge in cases and the emergency rooms uh, overflowing and all these deaths. China doesn't have any of that because they can basically say we're shutting down. Now we're beginning to see the flaws and perils, the deep flaws, and what happens with an authoritarian government that doesn't pay attention to broader realities. They did not gear up to have vaccines that were effective. They did not vaccinate their population. They used draconian measures that were never going to work because at some point they were going to have to end those. They were damaging their own economy and the global economy, not to mention creating all this enormous unrest. And it is an utter catastrophe, I would say, for China. And if you are the Biden administration, I think you're exactly right. You've got a bunch of measures that you could try to apply, none of which are deeply effective, but you've got to do something. And this was probably the best of the bad options to do, um, but it will have modest or limited effect. It's a lot better than travel ban, which could have many other repercussions, obviously, but also be uh, ineffective. The broader point to make here is, as we see this new variant, and we know there will be others, and we know there will be other viruses and mutant viruses emerging, we have to be concerned because of the degree to which response to a pandemic has been tribalized and distorted. And what we know is that if we get another surge that could potentially once again result in overcrowded emergency rooms, deaths, and the like, we do not have the ability anymore to say, okay, we're going to go back to the public health measures that would be responsible ones here. Shutdowns, masking, those are just not going to work anymore. And when you play that into the despicable response to what happened to this poor young 24-year-old man in a what is almost certainly a freak thing on a football field where just at the millisecond moment of the heartbeat where he has this violent collision that stops his heart. And you get people exploiting it for anti-COVID uh, response uh, purposes. It tells us how difficult it's going to be down the road to deal with this. Not to mention that these House Republicans want to cut off funding for the CDC to deal with future pandemics. And the Supreme Court is perfectly happy to take away the public health power from the CDC to respond to something that isn't explicitly in the law. There are a lot of things to lose sleep over here. There are a lot of things to lose sleep over, not to notwithstanding the media treatment of Damar Hamlin. And I'll actually, we will not mention that, the, that which shall not be named on Fox News, who has already kind of went on literally the day after Hamlin's cardiac arrest, actually had a headline report that said, why is there a rise in young athletes with heart issues? And then, you know, literally classic case of not just putting the cart before the horse, but just putting that out there in the universe of a, quote, unusual rise in young athletes with heart issues. But also the liberal kind of media, the, you know, my own network of favored MSNBC with, I was actually troubled. Everybody was covering DeMar Hamlin's story. How could you not cover it in the United States and abroad? 
there was so little attention given to how much these anti-vaxxers, and I call them terrorists, have been taking down and dismantling, trolling perfectly, re- like literally scientists, in uh, not just in social media, but terrorizing the very public health professionals who have to actually keep us safe. None of that is getting anywhere near as much attention as, again, that sh- which shall not be named will give to these issues. And and I don't know, I've lost, I guess I want to have you give us maybe a little bit of hope because Norm, I'll tell you, between Grant Wall, whose wife, Sling Gounder, is a, a friend and somebody that I consider just a respected colleague and her herself receiving continuously still to this day, horrible, horrible direct messages and comments, even in the public about why won't she face that this is a result of vaccines, et cetera? She was on Biden's COVID task force, of course. And so a lot of this is so personal for so many reasons. But then now with DeMar Hamlin to any, basically any opportunity, which is actually what a terrorist does. But Norm, I'm looking for some element of, of hope that the public actually cares and sees this for what it is. And it's not just the MSNBC left-leaning public that I want to believe that even though they have this kind of loud voice, the Joe Rogans of the world, the the Drew Pinskys, the Tucker Carlsons of the world, Ron DeSantis and his insane public the Surgeon General, that people really don't believe this. But Norm, t- take us through what you think is really happening in society. What can we do to counter this terrorism? Well, I will say, I think what we need to do is to fight back publicly and fight back hard. And I agree with you, some of this has to start with networks like CNN and MSNBC and with journalists more broadly. There's often this sense of, well, who's going to believe this stuff? But if you don't get the appropriate pushback, people do believe it. I want to see also a more aggressive move with data. I'd like to look as New York has this surge of people hospitalized. How many of those hospitalized? are unvaccinated and unboosted. And even if the uh, vaccination and the boosters don't work as effectively with new variants, we know they provide some protection. So I'd like to see the data, and I have to believe very firmly that the data are going to show that there are far more people who are unvaccinated, who are in the hospital and who are dying than those who are. And we already know there we have data out there that it's in the red states and it's among those who are unvaccinated who believe this stuff that we're getting deaths and we're getting hospitalizations on COVID. We need to make that case much more clearly and frequently so that voters who don't follow this stuff that much or people who don't follow it that much understand. And if what you have is one side of an argument presented over and over again, then that side is going to prevail. I often reflect back on what my late friend and mentor, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, wrote and said about defining deviancy down. We are now at a point where the most vile attacks, the inhuman and inhumane things, are not condemned the way they need to be condemned. There's no shame in this anymore. And people who may otherwise be decent human beings are doing things that they shouldn't be doing because they seem to be perfectly all right now. And we we need to get our traction to fight back. And I agree with you. Calling them terrorists is important, just as 
not calling them uh, mild uh, descriptors or using mild descriptors, just as journalists continuing, the Washington Post again today, referring to House Republicans who are with McCarthy as moderates, as Eugene Daniels did yesterday on CNN. And he's a good guy, but this is now the convention. We have to use the appropriate terms to call out extremists, insurrectionists, uh, anti-vax nutcases. Uh, and we need to do it on a regular basis. Hear, hear. 